the mission of the Messiah, not only for Israel at the time of their release from captivity. The, the, of course, the word was, was given years before they were going to captivity and then need, you know, they needed to be uh, set free from that captivity. But uh, the far-reaching fulfillment of that, of course, would also be at the second coming of Jesus Christ. So we're seeing a lot of near fulfillment, far fulfillment here, but the mission of Jesus is the same. And, and we have to really consider that the mission of Jesus, the Messiah, is first and foremost to his people and to his people Israel. Because that's what we see here in, in this particular chapter and in chapter 50 as well when we get to that. Isaiah 49, beginning at verse 8, though, and we'll read down through verse 12 and then we'll pray and get right into our study, is just a continuation of that mission of Jesus. Thus says the Lord, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. I will preserve you and give you as a covenant to the people to restore the earth, to cause them to inherit the desolate heritages, that you may say to the prisoners, go forth, to those who are in darkness, show yourselves. They shall feed along the roads, and their pastures shall be on all desolate heights. They shall neither hunger nor thirst, neither heat nor sun shall strike them. For he who has mercy on them will lead them, even by the springs of water he will guide them. I will make each of my mountains a road, and my highways shall be elevated. Surely these shall come from afar. Look, those from the north and the west, and these from the land of Sinem. Father, we pray for the anointing and blessing of your Spirit tonight. To help us in bringing that understanding, not only to our minds, but to our hearts especially. How all of these words and all of these chapters and, and verses and phrases and passages not only speak to your heart for Israel, but as well to us, the church, your body. May we be attentive, O oh God, to your leading and to your guiding. Let your word come alive to our hearts and minds. Let our eyes and our ears be open to you, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. And so in our last study in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 49, we saw so much that pertained to the person of Jesus Christ as the servant Messiah of Israel called and commissioned to bring restoration to his people Israel as well as extending grace to Gentiles. And as we shift into the next section of this chapter, we, we move from focusing on light, as we did last time, to focusing on liberty. The liberty that comes to the captives, whether it be those to be set free from the bondage of the Babylonians, or those who in the far fulfillment will see the return of their Messiah Jesus 
to ultimately set them free when they finally see him as he is. The Bible tells us that every eye will see Jesus. The book of Zechariah, the book of Revelation. Every eye will see Jesus. And those who pierced him will see him. The clearest. You can go all the way back to chapter 42 of this book, Isaiah. And in verse 6, to remind you of how he was given to be a covenant to the people. And that is the Messiah. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. God speaking to His Son, speaking to the Messiah. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles. (coughs) And as we saw God's servant Messiah called Israel in verse 3 of chapter 49, and in effect become the new Israel, so is He also the new Moses in setting His people free. And assuring us that God keeps all His promises. Especially that promise of restoration of His chosen people, Israel. You see, we we cannot do injustice here to the people that God said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will restore you. Yes, I will chasten you. Yes, I will put you into captivity. Yes, I will take you through these times. God told His people He was going to take them through these times. But He always promised that He would restore them. And even be with them. Through their darkest times. And so think about this promise in verse 8. Thus says the Lord, In an acceptable time, I have heard you. And in the day of salvation, I have helped you. Now please understand, God Almighty, God the Father, is speaking to Messiah. I will preserve you and give you as a covenant to the people. You see, this brings us back to chapter 42, verse 6. Speaking to Messiah. I will preserve you and give you as a covenant to the people to restore the earth, to cause them to inherit the desolate heritages. So you see how that language speaks specifically to the Messiah. Of what He is going to do in restoring the earth, in causing the people, God's chosen, to inherit the desolate heritages. So the Lord God continues to address His ideal servant Messiah. Remember we said, and I just mentioned it, verse 3. The Messiah is called Israel. Because He is the one who can actually live out the full name governed by God, Israel itself. How many times does God go back to calling them Jacob? Jacob was his, his original name, which just means thief. But Israel means governed by God. So Jesus is the ideal of that name Israel. But He's speaking to His ideal servant Messiah, and He speaks of the time of the coming exaltation, called an acceptable time or the time of His favor. God has a time of favor for His people. And interestingly enough, we also fall into that time of His favor. But it is when He demonstrates His favor to His servant and His people 
And I want you to compare this passage, if you will, in Isaiah 60, verse 10. So go toward the end of Isaiah, Isaiah 60, verse 10. Notice what it says. Isaiah 60, verse 10. The sons of foreigners shall build up your walls, and their kings shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor, in my favor I have mer- had mercy on you. You see that? To get a, a, an idea of what's, what's involved in his favor... What's involved in the acceptable time? Yes, he says, there is a time when I strike you, but in my favor I've had mercy on you. So mercy is a part of his favor. And then he also speaks of the day of salvation, the day that he will grant salvation. Full and total salvation. So he has heard and he has answered. And think of Messiah Praying for God's grace upon His own people. We know that Jesus prayed. In His earthly ministry, Jesus prayed. We know that Jesus intercedes for us before the throne of God right now. (coughs) Jesus never stops praying. So that tells us, that, that just gives us A view of what he was doing even then for his own people. He prayed as Messiah to God, to his Father, for this grace, for this mercy to come upon them. So God has heard, he's answered, thus helping his people in the midst of their situation of anguish and humiliation through his servant, who is represented as asking for God's grace on behalf of sinners. You know, as believers in Jesus Christ, we realize people prayed for us so that we could be where we are today in the kingdom of God and in the kingdom of Christ. And those prayers are important to God and their prayer, those prayers are important to us. But you know, Jesus prayed for us too. Jesus interceded for us. What a thought that is. And so, in other words, the Lord God extended His help and preservation to the Messiah, especially throughout all of His earthly ministry. Was there a specific time that that this prophecy and promise would be fulfilled? This promise of an acceptable time, of a day of salvation? Well, consider that it was as Jesus died. Consider that it was as Jesus died on the cross and trusted in the promise of resurrection. Consider that. Consider that the acceptable time. Consider that the day of salvation. It is true that the verse points as well to the millennium when the Lord will will enable His servant to be a covenant for the people and fulfill God's promise to Israel concerning their return to the land, which is already happening. But the Apostle Paul applies the words of this verse to his proclaiming of the gospel as well. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Paul uses this passage. When he says, we then as workers together with him also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, he says, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Paul is saying, now's the day. It's not 2,000 years from now. It's now, it's today, as it was then. 
For God's people to come back to God and trust in the Messiah, trust in His, in His, in His work in their lives. Paul says, now's the day. Now's the time. And I can say this, that today is the day for some of you that may not know Jesus Christ. Behold, today is the accepted time. We each and every one of us had our own day, our own accepted time. The day that we confessed Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and believed in our heart that He's risen from the dead. Each and every one of us that have come to Christ has had that accepted day. That day was already purchased by Jesus' death on the cross. It was purchased for us by what Jesus did. And Messiah will not only bring the covenant, He is the covenant, you see. He's not going to just bring it, He is the covenant to the people. That's how important these words are. We can't just skip over what we read here. It has meaning to say that He not only brings the covenant, the greater meaning is that He is the covenant. For that is what it says. And Messiah will not only restore the land, but make it prosperous by those who have returned to it. I'm speaking of that which some of you who are going to Israel tomorrow will begin to see with your eyes. A land that was at one time completely desolate and barren. When there were disputes with the Turks and with the British and with all of the other people that wanted control of this desert. Area upon area upon area was totally lifeless. And today, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful land. And it's a fulfillment of Scripture. That much would grow there where nothing grew there before. Oh, at one time it was beautiful until the Lord took His people out through captivity and spread them out through the diaspora. And the land became desolate. People fought over it for years and years. But today it's a fruitful land. And it's a reminder that God's promises are true. Just to see that land as it is. To see what's growing out in the middle of a desert is the fulfillment of what God said would happen. Verse 9 now. I guess we can stay on that verse for a while, but we better move on. Verse 9 says that you may say to the prisoners, Go forth. To those who are in darkness, show yourselves. They shall feed along the roads, and their pasture shall be on all desolate heights. The ministry of Jesus has always been this. The ministry of Jesus set people free. The ministry of Jesus not only brings light, the ministry of Jesus sets people free. And so, in the past tense, the ministry of Jesus set people free from bondage and imprisonment to the extent that He says to them, you're free. Go forth. As the text says. Go forth. 
Get out of that prison. I'm setting you free. You see how, how important that, that thought is when we think about what Jesus took us out of as once we were blind, but now we see once we were lost, now we're found. And the Lord said, I'm, I've set you free from that bondage of sin and death that the enemy had you in for so long. You're free. The prison doors have flung wide open. He says, go forth. The question is, have you gone forth? Have you, gotten out, have you gotten out of there? Which means you're no longer in that prison. You're no longer in that darkness. You're no longer bound by sin and by the chains of death and by the chains of all of those ugliness, uh, uglinesses and, 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 and evils and wickednesses. You're not, you're not bound to them anymore. You're set free. It's interesting to me how many people say, oh yes, I love Jesus, but I'm still bound. Well, Jesus set you free. You've got to get out of there. You see, when the Lord sets a person free from the bondage of sin and causes them to step into the light of God, they are no, there to no longer hide themselves. That's why the next phrase says, show yourself. You were in darkness, but get out of the, get out of the darkness, get into the light. They're no longer to hide themselves, but let others see what the Lord has done in and through them. You've got to get out of the darkness. This is tremendously symbolic, isn't it? As far as our own salvation is concerned, as far as what God has already done for us, get out of the darkness. Get out of the prison. I've opened the doors. I've opened the gates. You're set free. Listen to Jesus. In John 8, verse 12. Jesus said this. He spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness. If we follow Jesus, we walk in his light as he is in the light. 1 John chapter 1, verses 6 and 7 John writes this, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So not only have we come out of the darkness, out of the prison, but his blood has cleansed us. We're we're clean. We're in the light. We're set free. Show yourself. I know I say this you know, ad nauseum, but hey, there are not supposed to be any secret agent Christians anywhere. We're in a cloak and dagger thing, you know. That's not what we're supposed to be. Well, we've, we've been set free to be seen. To be seen in there. We're the light of the world. Jesus said that. He said, you are the light of the world. I know that he's the light of the world, but what has he done? He has come into us. He has said, I will be with you, and my light is going to shine forth from you. It's not our light. It's his light. So with that in mind, in the second part of verse 9, then as we go on, Israel is pictured as a flock in that as they return from their captivity in Babylon, they will nonetheless find pasture besides the roads. In other words, they will not be lacking as they travel. They will even find pasture on barren hills. Again, that picture of how God is going to provide even the midst of desolate places. God will always provide. 
Remember when Abraham was taking Isaac up to Mount Moriah? God provided a, a sacrifice. God provided the ram. When God took the children of Israel out of Egypt and took them into the wilderness, God provided what they needed. God provided them food. God provided them water. Everything that they needed. When we take steps of faith, God will always be there to provide what we need. But the operative word is taking steps of faith. Do you trust the Lord? Do you trust Him with your whole heart? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Too often we take that proverb, Proverbs 3 verse 5, and we kind of lean upon that uh, part, you know, that uh, says don't lean. And we lean on our own understanding. But these people were coming back from captivity and God was going to give them everything that they needed. The fact of the matter is that God will care for His people in a wonderful way always. He will always meet His people's needs. We will never hunger. We will never lack. We will never thirst. Why? Because God says, I'll give you what you need. If you hunger, if you lack, if you thirst, it is because you are not trusting me. You have to trust the Lord. Does not uh, Psalm 23 say in verses 1 through 3, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Which literally means I have everything that I need. I am not lacking. Because the Lord is my shepherd. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for His namesake. Everything we need is in Christ Jesus, our shepherd. Everything. And as you walk in the light of the Lord, He will care for you. He will provide for you. He will bear you, and, 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 and He'll give you all these things so that you will bear much fruit in your life, all because of Him. If you bear fruit, you bear fruit because of Jesus. If you prosper, it is because of the Lord. There's nothing to boast in. A lot of people can boast in their riches today. They watch all those TV programs where you get all those CDs and, and, and DVDs and tapes so that you know how to kind of work the, the market and work the system and all of that. I'm not that smart. I'd, I'd rather just trust the Lord. The Lord always provides. And he said, I'll, I'll, I'll get you there. I'll take care of you. In verses 10 and 10 through 12 of our text, it says, They shall neither hunger nor thirst, neither heed nor sun shall strike them, for he who has mercy on them will lead them. That's a beautiful statement, isn't it? He who has, he who has mercy on them will lead them. He's merciful to his people and he leads them. Remember the difference between driving and, and, and leading? Sheep are led. God has mercy on his sheep. Cattle are driven. Sheep are led. Even by the springs of water, he'll guide them. Psalm 23. Verse 11, I will make each of my mountains a road, and my, my highway shall be elevated. Surely these shall come from afar. Look. Those from the north and the west and these from the land of Sinem. You know, when I think of this passage here in verses 10 through 12, the, the first thought that came to mind was that beautiful hymn. We've, we've sung it not too long ago. and 
Gutierrez brothers who were here on Saturday night sang it as well. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. I thought of those words when I was reading this as I was just thinking how God just provides so much. What a foretaste He gives us here. I mean, we don't have here what we're going to have there, but what we have here is tremendous in light of what we didn't have before. But what we're going to have then is going to be greater than what we've ever had here. I don't know if that made sense or not, but I know one thing. (laughs) What a foretaste of glory divine. Blessed assurance. Because Jesus is mine. As I read this particular passage, those words just came to mind because these verses look well beyond. They look well beyond Judah's deliverance from Babylon to the future glorious kingdom. And while the Lord supplied and sustained the exiles from Babylon to Judah with His unseen hand, as we've been reading here, this also points to His mercy and provision for those who return to Him in the last days as they come from afar. They were driven far from the land, weren't they? Some 2,000 years ago. But what's happening? And what's been happening in the last 50 to 60, 70 years? The people are returning to the land. The Jews are coming home. And it's happening. They're coming from afar. The land of Sinem, interestingly enough, when it mentions that there at verse 12, these from the land of Sinem is rather an obscure term. Some believe that it is an ancient name for China. I know that if you've ever looked at the relations between China and other nations, they abbreviate it by calling it Sino, S-I-N-O, uh, American, let's say, relations. So they think, well then maybe it's talking about China. I don't know too many Jews in China. Or I, I don't, I'm not being facetious, or you know, I'm not trying to be funny, I just don't know too many Chinese Jews, I mean, honestly. Um, so, just, you get an idea of what I'm saying out of that. Maybe there might be, I mean, but they weren't driven in that direction. You know, most of them went to Asia, North Asia, Europe, and then, of course, to other parts. But, uh, Others consider it, this name Sinem, to be an area in Egypt known as the Aswan region. Many of you may remember uh, the Aswan Dam uh, that was very critical in the early stages of, of, of tensions between Israel and Egypt. But one person wrote this, and I just want to leave it at that. It's, he said, it is most likely that Isaiah was being consciously obscure. That even unmapped places are known to God. And even from them, he will gather his pilgrims. So, Sinem, who knows where it really is, God does. Verses, uh, Isaiah 43, verses 5-7. through seven. Let's go back there again just to tie this together with the prophecies that have been given. It says, Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your descendants from the east, gather you from the west. I will say to the north, Give them up, and to the south, Do not keep them back. 
Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory. I have formed him. Yes, I have made him. So we see then again, you know, how many times we find that the Lord is calling his people back from all directions. And as we move on into the next section of the text, we find an outburst of praise in which heaven and earth are called to join in jubilation over the salvation the Lord has granted His people and His faithfulness to Zion. Verse 13 of Isaiah 49, it says, Sing, O heavens, be joyful, O earth, and break out in singing, O mountains, for the Lord has comforted His people and will have mercy on His afflicted. Now the assumption here is that the people the Lord has comforted will also praise Him since the Lord calls for creation itself to add their voices in praise for all that the Messiah has done. I mean, listen, sing, O heavens, be joyful, O earth, break forth into singing, O mountains, for the Lord has comforted His people. So, again, the implication of the assumption is that the people also are to praise the Lord for what He's done. But, did you notice the word in, in verse, the first word in verse 14? is the word but. There it is again. But. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me, and my Lord has forgotten me. The Lord has forsaken me, the Lord has forgotten me. Zion. What is Zion? We should know this. It's Jerusalem. Mountain of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is saying, Oh, Lord, how can we sing praise if you've forgotten us and forsaken us? Jerusalem raises the complaint that it had been forsaken and forgotten by the Lord Almighty, which, which coincides somewhat with Israel's complaint in Isaiah 40, verse 27, when it says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over by my God? In other words, God's not paying attention. God is not uh, uh, looking at us. We're hidden from Him. He's hidden us. As for Zion's complaint here in, in Isaiah 49, they were speaking of the Babylonian captivity. And when the Lord was trying to comfort them, through it all, they came to the wrong conclusion. God is trying to comfort them. They're saying God has forgotten us. Do, do you see the problem here? God is wanting to comfort them. They're saying God has forgotten us. God has forsaken us. They felt that God had forsaken them and forgotten them. Haven't we done that time and time again with the Lord? Have we not done that ourselves? And that with lesser issues? I mean, it's one thing, you know, when we're, you know, we're taken into captivity by nations who put us into all kinds of bondage and all kinds of slavery and all kinds of stuff that they're doing to us, you know. It's another thing that we complain that God has forgotten us because we didn't get the kind of car we wanted to get. Do you understand what I'm saying? Do you understand this way that we oftentimes say God has forsaken us or God has forgotten us? This is not, this is not a woe is me. This is, this is a complaint. Listen, many Jews felt that way during the Holocaust. Now that was a serious issue. 
But they felt that way during the Holocaust and they will probably feel that way again during the tribulation period to come when the Antichrist rises with a desire to destroy the Jews again. So what a complaint this is. God is calling for all of creation to give praise for what Messiah has done in bringing comfort to His people. And the people say, He's forgotten us. He's forsaken us. Now the reason they went into captivity in the first place was due to their sin. It wasn't God. It was them. It was their sin. It was their rebellion. It wasn't God who had forsaken them or forgotten them. He was chastening them, yes. But He wants His people to know and to understand that He will never forget them or forsake them as we see in the next section. Look at verses 15 and 16. Can a woman forget her nursing child? Now before you answer that question yourself, listen to the question. Can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? Surely they may forget. You see, the first thing we want to say is, how can a mother ever do that? How could a mother ever do that? That's why he asked the question. Can a woman forget her nursing child? And not have compassion on the son of her womb. Surely they may forget. Yes, it is possible. Yet, yet I will not forget you. God says to his people, yet I will not forget you. And then notice what it says in verse 16. See? And, and, and you know, you can just almost picture, even though God, of course, is spirit and all, and... I'll explain the fact that this is anthropomorphic, but he says, See, I have inscribed you in the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. I've inscribed you. Remember, this is Zion's complaint. Zion is Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the city with walls. But just like a church is not the walls, but the people, so Jerusalem is not just the walls but the people. And God says, I've inscribed you in the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. If we don't consider the question asked in verse 15 carefully, we more than likely will answer compassionately, but mistakenly. We would want to believe that mothers would never do anything to harm their own children. And of course, an overwhelming majority of mothers have a deep, rich love for their children, no matter what their living conditions may be. But the possibility always exists. And of course, there are always exceptions that a mother can and will forsake and forget their own child. How many times do we see on the news where mothers have killed their own children? Of course, they're trying to pin it on somebody else. Take the, take the, you know, the focus off of themselves. My, my, my children were in a car that was carjacked. Yet they find out later, the mother did it. Well, the saddest one to me a few years ago was, was a little baby found in a dumpster. 
outside of a school. For the school, at the school, this young girl actually gave birth at the school and took the baby into the dumpster because she was at the prom. You see, it's possible. God has wisdom, doesn't he, to say what he says. Can a mother, can a woman forget her nursing child? Yeah, you bet, because they're selfish. We were born that way, all of us. The probability and the possibility always exists. But I want you to notice the Lord's answer. He says, yet I will not forget you. I will not forget you. And I tell you this, you can always trust God's word. You can always trust God's promise. I will not forget you. One of the most beautiful pictures to ever be found in Scripture depicting God's love for His people is in verse 16. He says, See, I have inscribed, I have engraved you in the palms of my hands. First of all, this is what is called an anthropomorphic expression. Giving God uh, some qualities of man, anthropos, is man anthropomorphic which means you know that uh, that we we give him hands or we give him you know well here in this particular case god is doing it to himself he's he's describing him this way metaphorically see i have inscribed you in the palms of my hands so that's that's the idea so this is an anthropomorphic expression and by the way it is not an endorsement for tattooing or the pricking of skin to carve an image I'm just saying that because that's not what it is. And so the expression is metaphoric as well. I can only tell you that because, you know, God prohibited the Jews from getting tattoos in Leviticus 19. You have to read it yourself. But the idea is that he's saying that just as someone in whose hand a name or an image has been engraved is bound to see it over and over and over and therefore cannot erase it from their mind. So the image of His people and of Jerusalem is always before the eye of God's mind. Her walls may have been broken down, but the Lord sees them ever before Him, and this is the guarantee that they will be rebuilt when He says, Your walls are continually before Me. And of course the walls would be rebuilt, wouldn't they be? Later on, another temple would be built. The walls of the city would be reestablished. But there's another picture to see. And what an obviously beautiful fulfillment there is, and, and I think this is the one that really strikes me the most, what a wonderfully beautiful fulfillment there is in the nail-scarred hands of Jesus. I have inscribed you the palms of my hands. We can see that love. We can see that love He has for us. Simply by seeing those nail prints that held Him to the cross of Calvary. For us. Talk about an engraving. Talk about a piercing. Talk about an inscription.
paying the penalty for our sins. With such love, could God ever forget His people? With that kind of love, could God ever forget His people? No. You remember in John 20, Thomas had been told that Jesus was alive and he said, I'll believe it when I see it. When I see the nail scars in his hands. When I see the nail or the, 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 the opening in his side. When I put my hands in them, then I'll say, yes, I believe. And Jesus appeared to his disciples and Thomas had come. And as he came in, Jesus said to Thomas in verse 27, Reach your finger here. Notice what he says. Reach your finger here and look at my hands. What did the text say in verse 16 of Isaiah 49? See! Look! Mira! I have inscribed you. Thomas, look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it in my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Look. God says, I've inscribed you. Jesus said, here's the inscription. Here's the engraving. So what follows is the result of the Lord's unchanging love for Zion. Verse 17 of our text. Your sons shall make haste. Your destroyers and those who laid you waste shall go away from you. Lift up your eyes. Look around and see, all, the, all these gather together and come to you. As I live, says the Lord, you shall surely clothe yourselves with them all as an ornament and bind them on you as a bride does. God's faithfulness towards Zion isn't just demonstrated by what He's done for them in the past and even in the present, but also by His future plans. And so the promise given was partially fulfilled in the return of the captivity from Babylon, but will ultimately be fulfilled in the regathering of Israel in the last days. You see, again, the destroyers could, could have pointed to the, to the Babylonians and others. And those who would lay waste shall go away from you. They, they, they won't pursue you any longer. Israel's going to be pursued again. Israel's going to be attacked again. But they will go away. Notice in verses 19 and 20. For your waste and desolate places in the land of your destruction will even now be too small for the inhabitants. And those who swallowed you up will be far away. The ones who had gotten you before, they'll be gone. The children you will have after you have lost the others will say again in your ears, the place is too small for me. Give me a place where I may dwell. The children, the ones who come later, they will say, this land is too small. It needs to be pointed out that only a handful of Jews returned from their captivity in Babylon. Just under 50,000 people out of 2 
to 3 million people that went into captivity. Which makes the statement even more powerful that they will multiply and prosper so much that the land will not be able to hold them. And we are seeing that today in Israel as well. For here is a nation only in the land a little over 50 years, and it has grown and grown, establishing new settlements throughout Israel. And even though they've had to give a few settlements back, nonetheless, the land is unable to hold them. One reason is because the borders, or I should say the boundaries, are going to have to be expanded to where God had them before. Well, that's for another night, okay, so not tonight. But the fact is that's part of the, the issue. But nonetheless, where they are now, there's not enough room. In verse 21 it says, Then you will say in your heart, Who has begotten these for me, since I have lost my children and am desolate, a captive and wandering to and fro? That, that's Zion speaking, you know. Who's begotten these for me? And who has brought these up? There I was, left alone, but these, where were they? You see, there is such a sense of astonishment in the statement given here by Zion concerning the splendid and marvelous work of the Lord that she doesn't know what is happening to her. I mean, they're still in that kind of darkness right now. They're in the land because God has put them there. Many of them don't even believe in God anymore, yet they're religious Jews. Or non-religious Jews, but... They're still Jews and they still go through all of the stuff that they do as Jews, but they don't know how they got there. You know how they got there? God put them there. They're little by little beginning to realize that. But they're still astonished at what's going on. And they're still somewhat blinded. Why? Because they're just wanting peace at any cost. They're they're willing to give land away. But they're the ones that are crying out for more land. That's confusion. Because their eyes are closed to their Messiah. Their eyes were closed 2,000 years ago. Their eyes are going to be closed until what? Until Jesus comes and every eye shall see him. And they who pierced him will weep. Notice in Psalm 126 verse 1, a song of ascents. Psalm 126 verse 1 says, When the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion, we were like those who dream. (laughs) We were like those who dream. Oh, Lord, if it could only be, if it were only this way. You see, when they look and see all that the Lord has done for them, it is hard for them to believe how blessed they have been. And that is true for us as well. I want you to think of all the, of God's blessings that He's graciously bestowed upon our lives. Think about all of those things that God has done for you. Ephesians 3, verses 20 and 21, Paul puts it this way. He says, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be the glory, or to him be glory in the church of Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. But, but let's, you know, here what Paul is saying, in essence, is don't limit what God wants to do for us. To him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. According to the power that works in us. It's in us. Let's not limit what God wants to do for us. For he truly wants to bless us abundantly even more than we could ever ask or think. And I think if we were honest, we would say, you know what? God has blessed us over and above anything I could ever ask or think. When we're thinking with the right heart and the right mind, He's blessed us 
over and above all that we could ever ask or think. Verses 22 and 23 say, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will lift up my hand in an oath to the nations and set up my standard for the peoples. They shall bring your sons in their arms and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers and their queens your nursing mothers. They shall bow down to you with their faces to the earth and lick up the dust of your feet. Ah, that's a tough one, isn't it? They're going to lick up the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord, for they shall not be ashamed who wait for me. One great sign of the end times is an ever-increasing anti-Semitism, which we have seen not only in our own country, but also growing in Russia and Germany and in many parts of the European Union. Not to mention, of course, much of the Middle East. But the saddest thing, though, is seeing a hatred of Jews in many so-called Christian churches especially those that hold to what is called replacement theology. Those who say that uh, Israel lost all of their blessings from God and now the church is the new Israel and therefore all the blessings of Israel are for the church. That breeds anti-Semitism. It is not what the Bible teaches. They can come up with all of their proof texts but I would just advise them, go see for yourself what God has done in his land and in his land, bringing his people back to where they're going to be. They're saying that that's inconsequential. How can that be inconsequential? When there has been no other race of people who have withstood such attacks from so many others to still be alive and be one of the strongest nations militarily that there is on the planet because of God. How blind can these people be? Well, I don't want to get off on that because I could spend another hour and I've I got to go get ready to go to Israel tomorrow. i got to do that. But the Lord is saying that there will be a day. There will be a day when the Jewish people will be loved and they will be honored as God's people. Even to the point of great reverence and respect. That's what we just read. Kings will be their foster fathers. Queens are nursing mothers. They'll bow down to, to them with their faces to the earth, looking up even the dust of their feet, which is really an expression of, of kissing their feet. First Peter 5, verse 6 says, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. And certainly they're going to be humble when they see their, when they see their Messiah coming and, and they see the nail prints in his hands that were inscribed for them. They will humble themselves and he will exalt them in due time. The Lord also says that those who wait for him, those who wait for him, those who look for him, those who hope for him and expect him to come again, will not be ashamed and will not be disappointed. We do not have to be ashamed in being Christians and people who wait for the Lord's return. We don't have to be ashamed. Some people say, well, where's the promise of His coming? You guys have been saying the Lord's coming for years. Yes, that's true. So was Paul 2,000 years ago. So was Peter. He says, coming. And he says, there are going to be people that are going to mock you. And say, where's the promise of His coming? He's coming. I've been a Christian for over 36 years. 
And back then when I came to know the Lord, people were telling me, Jesus is coming. I said, good, let's go. He said, it may not come today, it may not come tomorrow, but he's coming. Good. 36 years later, you know what? Today, he's even, his coming is even closer now than it was 36 years ago. So I'm even more happy. You see? It's all your perspective. Where's the promise of his coming? Well, he said he's coming, but you've got to be ready for it. You can't close your eyes or, or get attached to this earth, to, attached to this world, attached to the things of this world. Don't get attached to them. Jesus is coming. And think about this. How many of our brothers and sisters have we helped to welcome them into God's glory? You know, we call them funeral services, but hey, they're, 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 they're times of, of saying, you know, that if these people knew Jesus Christ, they're in the presence of the Lord today. God came for them already. The ones that are ready, praise the Lord. We rejoice with them. You see? In all these things and in all these events, the greatness and the faithfulness of God Almighty will be brought to the forefront. That's what it's all about. God's faithfulness and God's greatness. How great is our God? How great is His name? How great is our God forever the same? He rolled back the waters of the mighty Red Sea and He said, I'll never leave you. Put your trust in Me. Psalm 89, verses 6-8 through 8 says, For who in the heavens can be compared to the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty can be likened to the Lord? God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be held in reverence by all those around Him. O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty like You, O Lord? Your faithfulness also surrounds You. Might, greatness, faithfulness. Let's go to the last passage because it deals with the certainty of redemption in spite of the enemy's power. We're almost done. Verses 24 through 26. Shall the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of the righteous be delivered? But thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken away and the prey of the terrible be delivered. For I will contend with him who contends with you and I will save your children. I will feed those who oppress you with their own flesh. And they shall be drunk with their own blood as with sweet wine. All flesh shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. First of all, doubt. Verse 24. Doubt is expressed about whether it is possible to take back plunder from a warrior or rescue captives from the enemy. And of course, this is again a reference to the Babylonian captors. It seemed impossible that Israel should be delivered from them. But thus says the Lord. Notice verse 25. But thus says the Lord. The fact of the matter is that it was true for Zion when it was freed from Babylon. And it is even truer for those freed from the captivity of Satan. Yes, those who have been captive by Satan in the bondage of sin and death. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke 11, verses 20 through 22. He says, But if I cast out demons with a finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. That's what's going to happen when Jesus comes. He's stronger than the enemy, isn't he? And all the spoils of the enemy will Jesus take. 
And so all the nations who come against God's people will be dealt with by God himself. And the plunder will be taken away. And by his actions all will know that Messiah is their Savior, the one who has redeemed them with his mighty right hand. Our God is faithful indeed, never to forsake, never to forget. I want to go back just to that thought and close with, this, with these verses. The, the promises that God made not to forsake and not to forget. It's one thing for me to tell you what it says, and we read it there in verses 15 and 16. But notice what it's based upon. Early on, God in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 6 says, Be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be afraid of them. For the Lord your God, He is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. In Joshua chapter 1, verse 5, as Joshua is preparing to lead the children of Israel into the promised land, he is told, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. God says to him, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you, nor forsake you. In 1 Samuel 12, verse 22, even when the people were crying out for another king or for a king uh, like the other nations. He says to them, For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you his people. And then, of course, we can't forget what it says in the New Testament when it is quoted here in Hebrews 13, verse 5. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You see, we can be content with what we have because we have been blessed by this very thing. That no matter what we have, if we have him, we have everything we need. And the greatest thing that we have in Him is the promise, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That we can count on forever. Let's pray.